You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This radio program was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. Welcome to another Ocean Currents. This is the first Ocean Currents for 2009, and I'm looking forward to what 2009 holds for all of us and looking forward to sharing lots of ocean-related topics with you the first Monday of every month. My name is Jennifer Stock, and I'm the host for Ocean Currents. This is part of the West Marin, uh, West Marin Matters series, where every Monday at 1, you can hear about a topic relating to our local environment, economy, or community. On Ocean Currents, we dive into our blue planet and talk about ocean-related natural history issues, conservation and policy, and what you can do to get involved. We focus closely on our national marine sanctuaries off the coast here in California, but also look way beyond the borders to the larger ocean ecosystem as well. So thanks for tuning in with us today. Today we are focusing on an ancient animal that has been on this planet since the age of the dinosaurs, the leatherback turtle. This animal has a list of superlatives making it an incredibly interesting creature, yet this animal has met its greatest challenge in its lifetime with humans, and its future is in our hands. Right before the holidays, I had a great opportunity to see my two guests today speak at a lecture at the Randall Museum in San Francisco. And I gained a much larger appreciation for this animal and the understanding of the issues it faces. I am so pleased today to be able to bring them to the show. So in the studio with me today, I have Mike Milne, who is a leatherback sea turtle campaigner with the Sea Turtle Restoration Project based out of Forest Knolls. And on the phone with us is Scott Benson. Welcome, Scott. Hello. He is a biologist with the Southwest Fisheries Science Center and the Marine Turtle Research Program, part of NOAA Fisheries, who studies leatherbacks in the Pacific Ocean. You can imagine how hard it must be to study an animal that's potential ranges in all parts of the Pacific Ocean, um, including right off our coast here in Point Reyes. We'll be talking about what's happening on the Pacific Ocean in relationship to leatherback turtles and hear about the research Scott is doing in the Pacific. So welcome, Scott and Mike. Thanks for coming to the show today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you very much. This is great. So first, I just thought we could talk a little bit about the natural history of this amazing animal. There's so many cool factoids about that. And Scott, since um, you're um, coming on the air through the phone, I thought we'd bring you right in. Why don't you start off telling us a little bit about the leatherback turtle? And Mike, you can chime in, too, with some of your facts. So, Scott, tell us a little bit about leatherbacks. Well, as you mentioned, the leatherback turtle uh, is associated with a... a pretty long list of superlatives. Um, it is the largest turtle in the world, uh, up to two meters and, and 2,000 pounds in weight. Um, it's capable of diving to incredible depths, uh, over 1,000 meters. It's a transoceanic voyager. Um, this, the turtle here in, uh, that we have here off our coast comes to us from nesting beaches in the tropics of Indonesia, uh, the area that actually that experienced the earthquake this weekend, um, has a very high growth rate and a very high metabolic rate uh, among reptiles. 
It has some unique adaptations that permit it to exist in our very cold waters. It's the only turtle that we have here in uh, the California waters. <clears throat> it's a gelatinous zooplankton specialist. It eats jellyfish. So it achieves these tremendous size through a diet of gelatinous zooplankton. Um, as you mentioned, it's, uh, it's, uh has some relationships or some similarities to the dinosaurs in that it's a gigantotherm as the dinosaurs were. So its metabolic rate is actually somewhere in between a marine mammal and a turtle. Um, it lays multiple clutches of eggs every two to four years. And um, as you've said, it has been on the planet for, in its present form, for almost 70 million years. Wow, 70 million years. Are there any other animals that have been around even close to that? Perhaps some of the sharks uh, have been around for a long time like that, but um, you might ask somebody else uh, who <laughs> know better. What do we? What did the Earth look like? Do you think when leatherbacks were first around, and did they come from the land first? But how exactly did they evolve into a sea turtle? Gee, uh, <clears throat> well, I can tell you for certain that the Earth looked much different back in those times. As a matter of fact, the the nesting beaches that we've identified where the animals are coming from here um, didn't exist back then. So um, they were nesting in other places, most likely in the uh, Indo-Pacific region. And um, the leatherback is descended from Archelon, which was the, there was a couple branches of these large, highly vascularized turtles, of which Archelon was the last one. And leatherback is the only descendant from that animal. The Archelon was a huge animal, uh, much larger, actually, than the leatherback turtle. And, again, uh, probably, again, about 70 million years ago, we, we have the leatherback turtle that we know today. What do you mean when you say vascularized? <clears throat> it's, um, it's uh, the, for instance, the, the bones are vascularized even so that it makes it very difficult for us to age the animals. The, they have uh, countercurrent heat exchangers in the flippers where warm blood can go out to the flippers, cold blood goes back into the heart. This is one of the adaptations that makes it possible for leatherback turtles to exist in our cold waters. Um, and this high vascularization also contributes to its incredibly quick growth rate. Um, leatherback turtles uh, reach sexual maturity, we believe, somewhere between 10 to 20 years of age. And during that time, they grow from something that's smaller than the palm of your hand wow. to an animal that weighs uh, 700 to 1,000 pounds. Eating jellyfish. Eating jellyfish. So that was the nutritional value of jellyfish. I have seen jellyfish marketed in Chinatown in packets of plastic. So some people eat them as well. But what, do you know a little bit about the nutritional value of jellies? Must we, be something in there. We are learning more about it. The jellyfish is a been a much ignored uh, component of our ecosystem, but it is a very large component of the ecosystem. Um, all jellyfish are not the same. Well, that's, that's one thing we know. We have uh, some students at Moss Landing Marine Labs that are, that are doing this kind of work to understand more about the nutritional aspects of jellyfish. Um, and as you mentioned, there are some rather large fisheries around the world that um, go after jellyfish for human consumption. So um, apparently they're, they're, they're plenty nutritious enough for a leatherback turtle, although the, the turtles here... Um, 
seem to be focused on a particular species, the, the brown sea nettle, which, by the way, according to the research by um, Tanya Graham, uh, that that is actually the animal that has the highest carbon content and would probably be the most nutritious of all the jellyfish that we have in our waters here. So jellyfish exist in all oceans um, or all around the ocean and on our planet. What make the jellyfish on the California coast so important that they would, sea turtles would migrate all the way across the Pacific Ocean from Indonesia to feed here? Well, the jellyfish that we have here occur in just incredible densities. I, I like to term, use the term uh, biblical proportions. And they occur here during the... Uh, you know, summer and fall months. Um, really, when we're doing aerial surveys, we, we, we say if you fell out of the plane, you wouldn't even hit the water. And <laughs> these these aggregations go on for, you know, square kilometers, um, you know, along the coast. And so these animals, these jellyfish are a very abundant um, and are predictable both in time and space, meaning that they're going to be here during that time of the year in these large aggregations and exist in, in a non-random fashion. They're not found everywhere along the coast, but in particular spots, particularly between uh, Bodega Bay and Monterey Bay. And it's, quite, it's surely likely that these aggregations of jellyfish have been on our coast like that for a long time. Otherwise, we wouldn't see a, uh, a trans-Pacific migration by these leatherbacks. They, they're coming over here because it's been good here for a long time. Now, one thing you mentioned um, at the lecture back in December was that uh, turtles can be also found up in the Bering Sea. Are there jellies up there as well, or what are they up there for? Yes, there's a, another large aggregation uh, actually off of the uh, coast of Oregon and Washington, um, also likely eating the brown sea nettle. But as you mentioned, they can be found as far north as the Gulf of Alaska. And there are other species of jellyfish that the, the leatherbacks eat in some of these places, particularly the lion's mane jellyfish, um, which is apparently quite abundant in the areas further north of the Oregon-Washington coast. So we don't have that species here in high uh, in a high density. So in other places, they're using these other large jellyfish species again, similar to the the, the brown sea nettle that we have here. So would you say it's safe to say that turtles have an ecological role in regards to keeping jelly populations in check? Yes, I would think so. Um, there there are not many jellyfish consumers. Um, leatherback turtle is one of the more notable animals. Um, the ocean sunfish, the mola mola, is another. And there are some other fish species that will consume jellyfish, but probably not in the quantities that, um, that leatherback turtles do. Now, it's kind of hard for me as a biologist to imagine a, a, a vertebrate controlling a population of an uh, invertebrate like a jellyfish that's able to reproduce at you know, extreme proportions um, and, and very quickly. However, having watched these animals along the coast here for about the last eight years, it's really quite remarkable when you get into an area where there are leatherbacks, the destruction of jellyfish that we see at the surface. The, the turtles are not eating the whole jellyfish. As a matter of fact, they, they don't consume the bell very often. And when we're in a place where there's leatherbacks and these jellyfish, we see 
numerous uh, languid bells floating dead <laughs> at the surface where leatherbacks have been as if they're leaving a calling card. That's great. So it's almost a way to look for it. I'm going to look for that next time I'm out of the ocean for some jellyfish savage zones where they've been they've potential for those leatherbacks. Mike, I should invite you in here. Are there some other fabulous uh, facts that you find about turtles, some other natural history facts that you'd like to share? Well, Scott has done an excellent job and kind of providing a background on the Pacific leatherback. Um, I, I like to think of them as a sea turtles, sea turtles. <laughs> they are um, classic Olympic swimmers. They have huge, big, broad shoulders, long front limbs with giant paddles, huge pectoral muscles. Their form, which is kind of similar to perhaps an almond, you know, is designed to have water flow smoothly over their body to minimize turbulence and, and any suction that that would create. Um, you know, they are thought to be about three times more energy efficient than any other sea turtle while swimming. And uh, the one other thing I, I really like to think about is, you know, leatherbacks did survive the asteroid that uh, did lead the, to the demise of the dinosaurs. And not only that, they were the only sea turtle species thought to have actually survived that. So, you know, they are survivors. This is a survivor here we're talking about. Um, for folks just tuning in, this is Ocean Currents, and we're talking with Scott Benson from NOAA Fisheries, a sea turtle biologist, and Mike Milne from the Sea Turtle Restoration Project. And we're talking about sea turtles, leatherback turtles. So, um, obviously, there's so many cool natural history facts. We're talking about an animal that has survived an incredible amount of change on this planet from back 70 million years ago. And it's coming here, obviously, to the West Coast because of the productive waters here, because of the jellies. Scott, what is some of the science that you're focusing on trying to learn about leatherback turtles? Well, as you said, I work for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration in the National Marine Fisheries Service Program. And my job is really to understand um, where turtles are in time and space and both horizontally and vertically. Um, so my work focuses on distribution, abundance, and movement of leatherback turtles. And this information is primarily utilized to... Uh, provide to fisheries managers to help them, uh, to help fishers uh, essentially avoid leatherback turtles. So your your work informs how to support sustainable fisheries to avoid catching turtles. Yes, exactly. So how do you study a leatherback turtle? These are patchy animals, like you said. They're, they are only distributed uh, distributed patchily across the ocean. And how do you how do you do this? Well, the tools that we use are, uh, are, are there's a multiple array of tools. Um, we use aerial surveys extensively along the coast here, um, counting leatherbacks from the air using line transect techniques that allow us to derive densities. We also use molecular biology as a genetics to uh, identify the population or the stock, uh, in this case, of turtles. We do oceanographic sampling. And prey sampling, uh, we sample the jellyfish and, and try to understand something about um, the amount of jellyfish that's available for these animals to be eating and other things, as you mentioned, the uh, nutritional value of some of these jellies and use satellite telemetry uh, for understanding more about their movements, both within the foraging ground and all the way across the ocean. 
How long does it take? Well, I'm assuming you probably have to attach this tag at the nesting site. Well, actually, we do that at the nesting site in Indonesia and Papua New Guinea and Solomon Islands, but also catch leatherbacks free swimming off the coast here and attach transmitters to them uh, here locally. So how does you how do you catch a turtle and how do you attach a tag? These are massive animals. Well, the, the hard part is actually finding them. Um, because they are very low profile in the water, don't make a blow and uh, don't make a spectacle of themselves in terms of splashing, uh, we use an airplane to help find us the animals. And, and literally the, the airplane will tell us the turtle is 50 meters on your right and we'll just go 50 meters on our right and find, find the turtle. Um, and then we proceed to capture the animal with a breakaway hoop net. We have a, a very um, special boat that we use with Moss Landing Marine Labs who are collaborators with us. They have a unique um, a small landing craft type of vessel. So after we actually put this animal in a, in a small net, it becomes a bag because it breaks away from the hoop, we're able to lower a bow door and actually slide the turtle on board to this um, small landing craft. It, it's really a sweet arrangement that's just perfect for this kind of work. That's great. So you don't have to put a lot of impact onto the turtle. They just kind of slide on and slide off. Right. We put PVC plating on the non-skid deck, so the animal just slides on the deck and then um, have the uh, sides of the boat lined with rubber matting stuff just to um, minimize any potential uh, injury to the animal. So through the tracking, you've found this uh, migration. How long does it take them to migrate from their breeding site to the California coast? Is that a, a yearly thing and bi-yearly thing? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, um, it takes an animal, an individual, anywhere from 10 to 13 months to get across the ocean, uh, depending on the individual. And a turtle will come here and be here on these foraging grounds during any time between uh, first animals begin arriving in May and we'll be leaving sometime in late October or November. Um, and then after that, they usually go down to the, um, some areas in the subtropics near Hawaii. It's kind of overwinter in that area before coming back to the California coast to forage again. So they're different than marine mammals or whales that most folks might be in, uh, uh, knowledgeable about in that they don't go back and forth between a foraging ground and a nesting beach every year. It, they require several years at a foraging area before they're in proper condition to go back to the nesting beach and lay eggs, which is a, a fairly expensive thing to do. So this animal, they're not really localized. They're all over, moving across the Pacific, and there's a lot of threats in between. And we've seen in the last 30 years or so a huge decrease in leatherback turtles. And, Mike, I think we're going to talk a bit about, quite a bit about this in the, the second half here. Um, have you, does your group, does NOAA Fisheries study the populations of turtles? And what have you seen as far as populations go in the last few years? Yes, we do, we do do this. Now, this is unique because we don't have leatherbacks nesting on our beaches here. Um, the way turtles are normally counted um, is at the nesting beach. That's where we count all the, the reproductive females. And to do that, we've uh, been uh, providing training and resources, and we had the, the budget to do so, 
um, to the people who live at those beaches in Indonesia, Papua New Guinea, and the Solomon Islands. And their data at this point, which is just nesting data, um, shows that there has been a decline in this population that, that, that originates from the Western Pacific. It hasn't declined uh, in a steep fashion that we're aware of with the population that utilizes Costa Rica and Mexico as nesting beaches. Nevertheless, the, the local people there do tell us stories about uh, many more turtles being present when they were younger, and their nesting data do, do show a decline um, over the last 15 years. Now, these are communities that um, have historically also harvested turtle eggs. Is that still a practice that happens at these sites, or are they turning more towards embracing turtles as a way to help bring in ecotourism money to their to communities? Well, the, the, the largest nesting beaches where the most animals will be using um, – they are not harvesting eggs any further, nor are they harvesting the adults. However, leatherback turtles won't use just a single beach. If, they, if an individual lays 10 clutches of eggs, two of those clutches could end up in some place outside the, what we would call the protected beach. And in those areas, yes, local people in some of these other places will harvest eggs and actually harvest entire, you know, whole adults, slaughter uh, adults on the beach. So in places where we've been working, where the largest number of animals are, are nesting, nobody's using the eggs that way, and we've been, in the past, provided funding to, for them to carry out the monitoring work on the beach. Um, our agency hasn't had as much funding lately, so we're no longer able to do that. But there are some other avenues where the locals are exploring to try to maintain some level of funding to carry out the the bare minimum of monitoring. Um, as you mentioned, they have used leatherbacks um, and their eggs for many generations, uh, where the, the younger boys who were going through the rite of manhood would be responsible for collecting all the eggs at the beach and bringing them back to the village every night, uh, where they would be divided up amongst the, the people in the community. The communities in, this area, in these areas are subsistence cultures, they maintain gardens, they hunt, and the cash economy was only introduced there a few generations ago. There isn't a, a daily need for money. There's no store to buy anything, so people don't use money all the time. But they did harvest eggs at one point to provide to a, a middleman to raise money for their children's school fees. So um, at this point, if they're no longer using turtle eggs for children's school fees, uh, it'll be important that we provide some substitute for that, um, in this case, uh, for their efforts on the beach to monitor and protect the population at these very critically important nesting beaches. That probably varies a bit from each of the different communities that you're saying here, Papua New Guinea and the Solomon Islands, but also the Costa Rican population as well, and how they're dealing with those nesting sites. Do you think at this point now, since turtles have been heavily hit with longline fishing as bycatch, that the harvesting of eggs is a significant um, part of the decline at this point? I mean, they're getting hit from many different angles in regards to threats, but how significant do you think the, the local communities, it sounds like it's decreased quite a bit, but do you think still think it's a, um, 
a uh, viable cause for the decline. Yes, I do. I mean, the the issue here is that all the reproductively fit females are going to use those beaches. So it's not just a part of the population, but every reproductively fit female is going to use that beach. If one of those animals is slaughtered for its meat, then all the nests associated with that individual for the remainder of its lifetime are, are going to be lost. Likewise, the harvesting of eggs um, and Folks can be very efficient at harvesting eggs. I mean, every egg on a beach can be taken off the beach if somebody wants to do so. And that means no recruitment to the population. So when we have the, the combined effects of the, um, what happens on the nesting beaches with fishery bycatch, you, you kind of have a, a perfect storm, if you will, where you're losing reproductive, uh, reproductively fit females. And not having any recruitment into that population anymore. And certainly that's the, the uh, cause of the decline of the leatherback in the Pacific. Excellent. I want to fit one more question here before we take a break. But, Mike, what is has Sea Turtle Restoration Project doing anything at these nesting sites with these communities to try to help with this problem? Yeah, uh, we definitely are. You know, traditionally females have been killed and, and eggs have been harvested at these sites for sustenance. Uh, like Scott has mentioned. And uh, so we have a campaigner working over in Papua New Guinea on marine conservation deeds. Those are community-driven processes that establish a kind of a legal document and to create uh, a, a conservation area managed by the local people for the protection of their own natural resources. And so the communities we're working with have agreed not to kill sea turtles nor harvest their eggs for a period of five years and that's a renewable contract. And uh, working on six uh, right now, we just finished our first one, really pretty exciting. And uh, when the six are finished, we're going to protect approximately 40 kilometers of nesting beaches in Papua New Guinea. Wow, that's great. I think working with the communities is going to help bring, foster some stewardship from their their communities and how they want to bring their children up as well and trying not to harvest the eggs. Definitely. It's a it's a critical piece of the puzzle, and uh, it's really exciting because uh, our campaigner has been taking uh, the conservation deeds, which have typically been used for land-based resources like timber, and applying them to the water, to the ocean. So it's pretty innovative and really exciting. Great. Well, it's just about one thirty. We need to take a short break. Scott, please stay with us on the line. Thank you very much for coming on. And... Um, We will be back in just a moment. tuned into Ocean Currents on KWMR, and we're talking about uh, leatherback sea turtles today, and talked a little bit about some of the amazing natural history about these old animals that are still around on our planet after 70 million years and their adaptations, and heard a little bit about some of the science that Scott Benson is, is talking about. But we are facing an animal that has seen a huge crash in their population in the last 20, 30 years. And Mike, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of the population changes that 
um, you're working with and some of the efforts that you're campaigning on in regards to uh, leatherback conservation? Sure. My organization, the Sea Turtle Restoration Project, has been working to protect the Pacific leatherback for the last uh, 25 years now about. And uh, in the last 25 years, sadly, their population has declined by 90 to 95 percent. And now they are among the most endangered sea turtle species of any on the planet. Um, Approximately 10 years ago, a scientist released a study in Science Magazine that predicted Pacific leatherbacks could be extinct in as little as 10 to 30 years without major changes. And uh, additional you know, scientific data in that time has shown that you know, they have been pretty accurate for two of the three subpopulations of leatherbacks in the Pacific Ocean. So this is a species that is... 5% of the current population that they were in 1980. It's a pretty um, sad and dramatic decline. How about the population in the Atlantic? How are they doing? Population in the Atlantic is relatively stable. Um, there might be some indications that it could increase in the relative future. Yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of a, you know, it's a mystery um, why there's such a dramatic difference um, in, in the status of the population. Um, you know, Scott may know more about that than I do, but, you know, because there's such an emergency with the Pacific leatherbacks in the Pacific, you know, we really have been focusing all our efforts here. Mm-hmm. Scott, do you want to talk about that a little bit with the Atlantic population? Do you know what type of recovery efforts were in place to help stabilize that population? Yes, I would just say that the recovery efforts in the Atlantic uh, have been ongoing for a much longer time. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a... Con- as it, in contrast to that, the things in the Pacific, we just learned recently where the turtles are coming from here in California. We didn't, we we thought for a long time that they were also coming from Costa Rica and Mexico. So there's that aspect that the the, the monitoring conservation efforts are relatively very new in the Western Pacific. Furthermore, it's I think it also has something to do with the way that people actually utilize the animal. In the Western Pacific, we know that. People do consume the eggs as they do in in the Eastern Pacific and likely did in the Caribbean, but also that they consume the adults. And this is actually very kind of unusual. When I started working with leatherback turtles, I was told that nobody eats the adult animals because it doesn't smell good, it doesn't taste very good. But over the course of the last eight years during my travels to the Western Pacific, I realized no, actually, people have eaten leatherback turtles and continue to do so at a much larger amount than anybody really realized prior to that. And so, Mike, as far as it seems, I mean, the big decline we're pointing to is longline fishing with bycatch and the longline fishing with these these long, long miles of nets and or not nets, but hooks are taking marine mammals and sharks and and turtles. What are the current longline fishing efforts in the Pacific Ocean that you're aware about and that are the biggest issues for leatherbacks? Sure. Well, just to zoom back a little bit so people have an understanding of what a longline is, is generally a longline is a fishing method that is intended, that is used to catch the migratory predator fish of the ocean, the tuna, the swordfish. Um, Vessels are deploying... um, about a 60-mile line that's roughly from Santa Cruz to San Francisco with thousands of baited hooks. 
And uh, each year in the ocean, there's over 1.5 billion hooks set on longliners. Um, so that's about 5 million a day on about 100,000 miles of line. And, uh, yeah, the problem, as you stated, is that um, it's a non-selective fishing method where about 40 to 50 percent of what is caught is uh, not the target species. So that's millions of sharks each year, tens of thousands of uh, seabirds, uh, marine mammals, sea turtles, uh, other billfish, and, and other discards. And uh, right now, the U.S. has uh, one longline fishery in the Pacific, and that's based out of Hawaii. It's a fishery that is right now pretty heavily regulated due to a lawsuit that we filed uh, several years ago. That fishery was actually closed for about three years uh, to protect the leatherback sea turtle. Uh, now there are plans to introduce additional longline fisheries, uh, including two along the California coast. Uh, one within uh, from 50 to 200 miles off our coast, where longline fishing has never been permitted, and it was actually historically banned by the state legislature. And then another one um, outside of 200 miles on the high seas, um, which would be a much larger fishery, which would threaten the leatherbacks as well. So there's a proposal for opening these fisheries right now? Yes, there is. Um, right now, um, they are working their way through the system. Uh, the, the proposal to, to fish within um, 50 miles of the coast is actually in the late stages of the process. Um, and we just heard that uh, the state will not have an opportunity to provide input on that fishery like they did last year. Uh, last year, the California Coastal Commission was uh, able to review that permit and reflect the state's perspective, which is the state does not want long lines off the California coast. The California State Legislature recently passed a resolution against long lines off the California coast. The California Department of Fish and Game has historically been against long lining. And most recently, the California Ocean Protection Council also passed a resolution against this fishery. Mm -hmm. um, the high seas fishery, the second fishery that's 200, over 200 miles off the California coast, is um, something that is going to be, be reviewed in March. So that, the process is kind of just beginning. And uh, that would be a much larger fishery with up to 20 boats. Now, from what I understand, this is also a proposal for a modified gear. Yeah, there, there have been um, improvements in the gear, no doubt. Um, in Hawaii, um, where uh, bycatch of, of leatherbacks has declined, um, you know, but you know it's still a very imperfect system. In 2006, um, after after the Hawaii fishery was reopened, it had to be closed in March because they had already reached. Um, they have a quota mm -hmm. of leatherbacks that they can catch each year, and it took them about three months to catch them. Mm. Um, and so, but the scientists, you know, they're continually kind of improving their understanding of where the leatherbacks are and, and and why they get caught in long lines. But, you know, um, personally, I think if every fishing long line fleet in the entire world had the best available technology that we have today, because there are so few leatherbacks left in the Pacific Ocean, less than 5,000, um, I still think that long line fishing would probably prevent this species from recovering from the where they are right now, which is spiraling towards uh, extinction. Mm -hmm. Scott, how does the science, as far as the tracking goes, 
um, from, of course, from the tra- from the breeding grounds, but also the local foraging use of California's waters. How does your science help inform some of the decision making in regards to allowing or disallowing this fishery? Well, our data will be utilized uh, again to, um, as Michael might have mentioned, the the area off the coast here has been a uh, swordfish fishing ground for. Um, swordfish utilizing drift gill nets for a uh, long time. Uh, and our data are useful to in regards to, to them establishing a time area closure. So the waters off the California coast and, and southern Oregon um, were uh, prohibited from drift gill net fishing from 15 August through 15 November because of our information that leatherbacks are in those waters during that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then likewise, again, it's a, a, uh, in to- a time and space um, aspect where, you know, people want to know where could we fish and when could we fish there um, and have the lowest probability of encountering a leatherback turtle. And so that's how our telemetry data are used. I see. So what's the current status right now, Michael, with... Um this proposal, is there anything that concerned citizens can do to speak up about it? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely uh, many different ways that you can get involved. Um, I would encourage everyone to check out our website. That's www.seaturtles.org. That's plural, seaturtles.org. And uh, we have several uh, items that people can take action on. They can contact their representatives or uh, officials at the National Marine Fisheries Service. Um, on a personal level, you know, there are also um, very tangible and powerful things that you can do. Um, you know, our dinner plates are one of the most tangible ways that we're connected to the ocean. Um, you know, part of this issue is that we are putting too many hooks in the ocean. We are just simply overfishing. And, uh, you know, by reducing your consumption of tuna, that's caught on long lines, and, you know, to stop eating swordfish. Every time, you know, you have a swordfish dinner, you... You end up eating a, a side helping of endangered sea turtles. You know, you are commissioning the fishermen to go out there. And, uh, you know, at this point, um, other than uh, perhaps some harpooning um, that takes place in Southern California, we don't have a bycatch-free way to catch swordfish. Mm-hmm. As far as the fishery goes, what I'm seeing is that they want to promote a fishery here in the United States because they know how it's being fished and they can w- regulate closely. And that would help maybe reduce imports from other countries where they can't see as closely how swordfish is caught and the the bycatch there. So I can see the devil's advocate role here with the 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 federal government here in the United States wanting to promote a fishery that is based on science and the modified gear and 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 uh, observation, but. How does that play in in regards to your viewpoint here, Michael, with imports of swordfish from other countries where we have no idea how these animals are caught and how many animals are killed? Right. Well, you know, that's a really good point, and I'm glad you brought that up. Um, that is something that they're claiming, um, that we, we can fish in cleaner ways and we can reduce our in- reliance on imports. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, they, uh, the National Marines Fisheries Service, has had have had several tools uh, to reduce our reliance on imports that haven't been utilized in the last, you know, 10 years or 20 years even. Um, they have provisions 
of the Marine Mammal Protection Act that they could have used to reduce the imports of swordfish or compel foreign nations to adopt U.S. standards. Uh, new provisions of the reauthorized Magnuson-Stevens Fishery Conservation Act um, basically require nations who import seafood products to have a regulatory program to reduce bycatch that's comparable to the U.S. within five years. So, you know, we do have a lot of other regulatory uh, tools. We have the legal authority to make um, our, to have clean imports. Um, additionally, uh, honestly, I haven't seen any proof that if we have um, a U.S. fishery that less boats are going to go out fishing for swordfish overseas. Um, so we could end up just increasing fishing effort Mm-hmm. and compounding the problem. And, uh, you know, if if we do have more locally supplied uh, swordfish and, and let's say we do and prices decline, uh, what are we doing to demand? Are, right. are we stimulating more demand? And, and how does that feed back into the system? Mm-hmm. So, you know, it it's kind of something that um, kind of is a little seductive, but, you know, I, I don't really think um, it holds much weight. When, once you have some careful analysis of that Mm. point. Interesting. Scott and Michael, um, what are the most important things you think, what are the most important aspects of uh, saving this animal that you think we should be doing? We're getting, sea turtles are being hit with longline fishing. We didn't even really talk about climate change all that much, although that's going to be a huge issue coming up on the horizon for this animal, but also the nesting grounds. What do you think we should focus most of our efforts on, um, as a as a world trying to save these turtles with all the different countries involved and economic interests. Scott, we'll start with you. Well, it's hard to isolate one thing. Certainly, it's a combination of both what happens at the nesting beach and what happens where the animal spends 95% of its life in the water. Um, clearly, the nesting beaches are very critical. If there isn't a place for animals to lay eggs and have them hatch and get back into the water, then none of the things that we do in the water are going to make any difference whatsoever. So we definitely need to show some solidarity and back up our colleagues and our friends over there in the areas, like I mentioned, that Mm -hmm. were just hit recently with this earthquake during the weekend. Those are the places where we learned our, our colleagues were okay they, you know, survived that earthquake, but I imagine that the small villages there were probably devastated by that 7.6 and 7.3 earthquake um, just, uh, you know, 24 hours ago. So we have to show some solidarity with those folks in that regard. And likewise, as as Michael said, the demand for swordfish is very high. We're I'm in the business of leatherback recovery. I I look at it and say, well, if there's going to be this kind of demand for this product then we have to think of ways, safe ways to extract that product without endangering, without continuing to endanger other marine species or ecosystems. And so that will mean continuing the, this kind of work in terms of learning where these animals are and further gear developments to um, have clean fisheries and export those technologies to other nations. Um, it won't be enough just to be able to do that with U.S. fisheries, but as we've talked already, this kind of uh, these kinds of uh, technologies need to be ma- made available all around the world. Michael, you want to add to that? You know, I, I'll definitely echo Scott's uh, comments. The protections at the nesting beaches are 
critical. And, uh, you know, that's something that needs to be said that you, we will need a multi-pronged approach, especially with the specter of global warming and the, the consequences that will, it, that will have for the leatherback sea turtle as well. Um, you know, and, and that's why a sea turtle restoration project is also working in Papua New Guinea on the nesting beaches. Uh, you know, but I think it's also instructive to point out a little bit of the history of Pacific leatherbacks. Um, there are three subpopulations in the ocean, in the Pacific Ocean. There was one in Malaysia that's now uh, extinct, effectively extinct. One in Mexico that's been reduced to less than 1%. And then we have this population in Indonesia that, you know, we don't really have long-term trend data on. And uh, it's really a great opportunity to save this save this species. And uh, But at the other two sites in Malaysia and Mexico, they had... Uh, a prohibition on egg collection. They had parks uh, in Mexico. The sea turtle biologists were working with the Mexican army to protect the nesting beaches, literally. And still, the scientists at both those sites ultimately concluded that international fisheries were still causing a decline in those species. So we can have all these protections we, you know, that are so necessary at the nesting beaches and still not save these species, as recent history has showed us. So, you know, we really do need um, to rein in longline fishing, just the amount of it we're doing. And, you know, I think the U.S. definitely has uh, more responsibility to play a leadership role, um, you know, to do whatever we can to strengthen international fishery management, uh, you know, to restrict our imports of unsustainable seafood, uh, especially swordfish, as I mentioned earlier. Um, and ultimately, the long-term solution may be establishing a Pacific-wide network of uh, marine protected areas for the leatherbacks along their migration corridors. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you know if that's not going to work, then uh, we may have to stop longline fishing. So, lots and lots of change to come about in 2009. And I know with. Um a new appointment for the head of NOAA. There could be some change coming within NOAA as well. Jane Lubchenco is a, a very well-known marine ecologist and conservationist coming to the head of NOAA. So we'll see. There should be some interesting changes ahead, and we look forward to that. But I want to thank Scott and Michael for coming on the show today to talk about leatherbacks. Thank you, Scott, for calling in from Monterey. Well, thank you for having this program. I think this is a great thing that you're doing. Uh, It's a great service to make people more aware about the ocean ecosystem. Thank you. I wanted to ask you before I let you go, is there a website that you would want to point out with NOAA? I was at your presentation and saw Turtle Cam, which too bad we can't broadcast on the radio, but it was so cool. Um, is there a website that you'd want to point people to, to to see images and, and video from your work? We have uh, our our website at um, uh, SWFSC for Southwest Fishery Science Center dot NOAA, N-O-A-A dot G-O-V. And you can navigate your way through that to uh, find some information about the sea turtle uh, population assessment program. And likewise, you can get some other information from a uh, an effort we were working with uh, in collaboration with others called the Great Turtle Race at greatturtlerace.org. And there's lots of really very good links there um, to provide more information about leatherback turtles in the Pacific. Excellent. Thanks so much, Scott. Michael, how about you? Any last websites? Thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks so much. I had a really great time. It's great to get the word out on the species that uh, very few people still know about, um, the big foot of the California Ocean, if you will. 
And uh, so, yeah, I would encourage people to go to our website, the Sea Turtle Restoration Project, at www.seaturtles.org. And uh, we've got, you know, a lot of information and a lot of ways that you can uh, take action to help save the species from extinction. Um, most recently, uh, we're going to, in a couple days, we're going to have uh, an action item where people can uh, express their support for our swordfish uh, import petition. Um, the National Marines Fisheries Service has just decided that they are going to review whether to uh, restrict the imports of swordfish um, until foreign nations prove that their fishing practices don't harm or kill marine mammals and sea turtles, um, too, in, um, in excess of our own U.S. standards. So uh, I would encourage people again to visit our site. That's www.seaturtles.org. Wonderful. And thanks so much. I had a great time. Thank you. Um, we are just about to wrap it up here on Ocean Currents, but I just thought I would sh- share this last piece here that I actually pulled off of your website, Michael, that just rang to me about all of this because the turtle issues are way beyond just one thing. There are so many things, and it proves how things, how we are all very connected. And I'll just read it straight out from um, what I read. The most important and fundamental lesson of ecology is all things are connected. The survival of humans and sea turtles are intricately interwoven in the need to have functioning and healthy ecosystems. This means clean water and air, sane fishing policies that do not eliminate marine biodiversity, especially top predator marine species, and recognizing that there are limits to growth. As we are all work towards these goals, we can create an earth that will support current and future generations of humans and turtles. I think that really just summed it up so nicely um, in regards to how we all need to live together on this planet. We definitely want to eat fish. It's a part of our diet, but we need to keep things in check and keep things in balance, which I think starting off the new year is a good thing to think about is, is keeping things in check and balance. So we're just about at the end of the hour here for Ocean Currents. Thanks for tuning in today. Um, as always, you can tune in on our podcast, the Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary Saves This Show as a podcast, and you can go to cordellbank.noaa.gov to catch past shows of Ocean Currents hosted here on KWMR and uh, hear about future shows coming up as well. So thank you so much for tuning in today. And we'll be back at the beginning of February with another show, of which is still to be determined. So stay tuned. Thanks again for joining us on KWMR. Thank you for listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marin Community Radio, KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov.